Thomas, the assistant pastor here. All right, our passage this morning is coming from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, as you're turning to 1 John 4, uh, it's always interesting when I get to preach and uh, Stuart's, I'm not a part of a series that Stuart is doing, because uh, usually uh, Reverend Stuart will come by and say, so... What are you preaching about? I'm not saying there's a lack of trust there. Just he likes to double check. Um, And so this morning we're going to be talking about God. And I don't mean that in a facetious way. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Trinity, uh, which is mildly terrifying for me. uh, Because I love the Trinity, but there's also a power there in talking about who God is. Uh, And so if I say anything wrong or false, uh, it gets pretty hairy pretty quickly, especially in the Presbyterian denomination. But this is also a subject that I needed to hear. I've spent August a little discouraged and frustrated, and it was good to settle down and just study the Lord for a while. Not the odds and ends, not all the extra things, but just who God is. So that's my hope this morning. That's my prayer. Uh, And I pray that the sermon is encouraging. So, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It's very simple. Most of you probably already know it. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I I thank you that you're the God of love. That you are love. And without you, there is no love. And so I pray this morning that we may feel and know your love that is pressed upon our hearts. Lord, I know I always pray this, but I I sincerely mean this. Father, if I say anything false or untrue this morning, I pray that it may fall upon deaf ears. Amen. So this summer, we uh, I do the youth ministry. If you're unfamiliar, I I do lead the youth ministry. In the summer, we ask the students, what do you want to talk about? And usually, uh, when I ask that question, I always runs the gamut. Uh, There are always social issues that the students want to discuss. Uh, Relationship issues come up pretty often. But almost always, and I really appreciate this, at least somebody says, I want to talk about the Trinity. And I love that. Uh, Matter of fact, Holden told me this morning that I should do a Q&A session after the sermon. Um, Not going to do that. But I love that desire because we should want to know more about God. We should have that desire. We should have that longing. That should be 
a driving desire in our hearts as believers. We say we profess the love of God. We uh, profess, we proclaim the grace of Jesus. We take comfort in the Holy Spirit and the hope that He provides. And so if we say these things, if we're going to proclaim those things, should we not seek who God is? And we were looking forward to an eternity spending time with God in the fullness of His glory. It truly is a love so fulfilling, so divine, to simply know the amazing Lord who loves His people. I liken this idea to a marriage, and no, I am not married, uh, but I've been told uh, there is great joy in marriage. And of course there is. I'm not saying all marriage is easy. Uh, of course not. But one of the beauties about it is getting to know the person who loves you. The getting to spend time with somebody who has entered into a covenant with you. That is a tremendous blessing. And we have a God who has entered in covenant with us, a promise that he will be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. And one of our great delights is getting to know God. And so that is the main point this morning. It is very simple. It is very straightforward. We should seek and know God. We should seek and know God. Now, I do plan on getting into the Trinity, uh, but I need to set up some guardrails first. Uh, the doctrine of Trinity is core to the Christian belief. It is essential. Matter of fact, the Nicene Creed that we confessed this morning was written to further explain the Trinity. Because this one theologian came out saying, I believe Jesus was the first created, so the church came together and was like, is Jesus like God or is he God? And it was a big meeting. But they took it very serious. So serious, though, that there was one uh, man by the name of St. Nicholas who was very well known for giving gifts to children. And according to legend, he took the divinities of Jesus so seriously that he walked across the room and slapped someone. Not advocating slapping people. But when it comes to God, we should be serious. When someone speaks less of the Lord, we should be offended. So I want to make sure that I set up some guardrails because I'm going to use temporal language to describe an eternal God. And I want to make sure that we understand what I mean when I say these things. Now, these truths are probably best put forth in the Athanasian Creed, which is thought about doing this morning, but is very long. Uh, it's also very confusing. It would probably work better as a Sunday school class, which we could do now. I mean, I'm in charge of Sunday school, so nobody's going to stop me, so that's good. <laughs> but I'm going to try to sum it up briefly, and then we can dive into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is this. We believe in a triune God. Three 
yet one. They are distinct in their persons, but their essence is not divided, and this is important. Uh, Father and Son and Holy Spirit are distinct, yet not divided. A friend of mine wrote in his paper once, he said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are separated. And unfortunately, this was uh, for actually Dr. Kelly's class. And I believe, I know he failed the paper. I believe he already, they just failed the class automatically. And the professor said, you are going to meet with me once a week for an, every, an hour every week until, you, until we can go over the doctrine of the Trinity. My friend's like, that was terrifying, but it was also amazing. And he still had to retake the class. Now, I don't have that kind of time this morning. I don't think y'all want me to spend 15 hours preaching. But here's, here's the core of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. There is one God. There, there, there is not three gods. There is one God. All three are Lord. All three are eternal. All three are almighty. Yet there is one Lord, there is one eternal God, there is one almighty God. Or as the Shorter Catechism puts it, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is essential to Christian belief. We do not and we cannot stray from this. So as I discussed, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, do not forget there is only one God, three persons, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so if you're new to the faith, you're like, Nathan, you're sounding weird. Uh, This is crazy. I can't believe Christians think this. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and answer, ask the question, why does God exist as a trinity? And there's philosophical arguments I could get into. I could talk about simple and complicated, but I don't want this to be a seminary lecture. But I do think that our passage today gets to the core of it. Anyone who does not love God, does, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. That is People are quick to make that statement. Even non-believers will say, God is love. God has always been love. God will always be love. This is an eternal truth. And why there is three persons? But Because God is love. For, the, for there to be love, there must be more than one person. There must be fellowship. Love is not self-centered. It's not navel-gazing. Love requires a relationship. And as you'll see, we see that love in the Trinity. So we'll start with the first person in the Trinity, God the Father. Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Uh, he begins saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus begins the prayer establishing our relationship, and especially his relationship with God the Father. 
He is a father. This is not a metaphorical father. He's not hypothetically our father. You know, he's, he's not like our father. He's not even like a father. He is our father. He is the greatest of fathers. And I know the men in this church who have children, uh, that can be scary because your fatherhood is merely poor reflection of the fatherhood that we have from God. And he is a good father. He loves his son. And then in an incredible passage, the baptism of Jesus, uh, we see the father speak. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is Jesus at the start of his ministry. Now there's a lot of beautiful things that happen at once at Christ's baptism. Uh, absolutely amazing. But I think this is really beautiful because there's a divine gentleness to God the Father here. In the Old Testament, when God speaks, the reactions are extraordinary. Moses talks with God, and then when he goes to talk to other people, they ask him to cover his face because it shines so brightly. Like, you need to wear a veil. I can't look at you. Like, that's what happens when Moses talks to God. Isaiah has a vision where he's in the throne room of God. The train fills up the entire temple. And Isaiah just feels the weight of all of his sin, and he immediately repents, and he asks to be made clean. Ezekiel briefly spends time in the presence of God and is so overwhelmed, he just sits quietly for a week, doesn't talk to anybody. Very Presbyterian. God is holy. God is divine. God is terrifying and awe-inspiring. We see this throughout Scripture. But here at the baptism of Jesus, the Son of God, you hear the phrase, the heavens tear open, which I imagine is pretty awe-inspiring to see the heavens tear open. We see the Spirit descending like a dove, but all of this, the focus remains on Jesus. Before in the Old Testament, those terrifying and wonderful and glorious things uh, that happen, or even later, and especially in the book of Revelation, all those things, at the baptism of Jesus, they are merely hinted at. Because God the Father loves the Son, and He wants the focus to be on the Son. Matter of fact, John the Baptist, who made the way ready for Jesus... What a great calling. He's like, no, I'm getting you ready for the real thing. I'm announcing Jesus is coming. But he says this, the Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hands, into his hands. Fathers should love their sons. That is what is supposed to happen. And God the Father loves His Son, and He expresses this love through giving a gift to His Son. And so let me say this. See if I can make things a little bit more tangible for you. 
If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins, if you have placed your faith in the Savior, but John the Baptist teaches and what Jesus will confirm in a second, you are a loving gift from God the Father who loves His Son and wanted to give Him a gift. And so He gives Him a bride. He gives them a people. He gives Him a family. Jesus says so Himself in His marvelous prayer in John 17. Yours they were. I'm talking about the apostles and those who follow after the apostles. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. This is the love the Father has for the Son. And this is the prayer for many fathers that their son may have a bride. And the Father has given his son a bride in the church. And Jesus, God the Son, through his marvelous grace, he claims that gift. He claims his bride. The prayer I just quoted from ends with this marvelous line. I made known to you, I made known to them your name. In other words, Jesus saying, I have brought your name to them and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be, may be in them and I in them. Jesus is saying, look, the love that you have shown me, Father, I am taking to them that they may know the same kind of love. And this is amazing. This is beautiful. See, there's a reason Christ had to come to earth. Because we, as God's people, are a rebellious bunch. We are sinners. We we would turn away from the Lord. And we see it clearly in the Old Testament. Abraham, the man we sing a song about as little kids, about having many sons. God makes a marvelous promise and even goes into a covenant with Abraham to have these many sons. Yet Abraham, knowing God and having an amazing relationship with the Lord, still fails in trusting God that he would have a child with Sarah. The Israelites, about 400-ish years later, they are held captive and God brings them out of Egypt. God's presence is with them in a cloud or a pillar of fire. God gives them food on a daily basis. Yet the Israelites leave Egypt. They watch God defeat the Pharaoh and his armies. And they still go, you know what, maybe we should turn around. Maybe we should go back. Some of Ezekiel's writing is so graphic in comparison of uh, God's people's unfaithfulness, I'm hesitant to even mention it. The book of Hosea is nothing but about how unfaithful God's people are and how faithful the Lord is. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. Paul is pretty unequivocal when he says, none is righteous, no one, no one understands, no one seeks God. It 
It's terrifying. The Lord who created all things, and Paul is saying, no one seeks God. John, in the book of Revelation, writes letters to the churches and he tells them, you have forgotten your first love. You have turned away. We may be a gift given in love, but because of our own sinfulness, we are broken, we are battered, we are hurt, traumatized, and we're evil. And we are in need of grace. And Christ, our brother, is the light that shines in the darkness. We are not worthy of salvation, yet Christ fills us with grace so that we may be saved. We can't go to the Father and say, this is why we are worthy of heaven, but Christ does. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made them to be, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took on flesh. He bore our sins on the cross that we may have his righteousness. So that the gift that the Father gave him, this bride that the Father gives him, that Christ claims her. So that we may celebrate at the eternal wedding feast. The glory we have in heaven, that is given to us by Jesus. Where we should be forsaken. Jesus stands in front of the Father and the angels and says, I know them. Their names are in the book of life. His amazing grace pulls us to him. He speaks on our behalf. He mediates for us that we may be redeemed. This is a tremendous grace. This is a tremendous love. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we get to partake in these blessings. Now the Holy Spirit is often called the mystery of God. And I think most of this becomes the Holy Spirit. His role is usually he shines the light on the love between the Father and the Son. Through his work, we see and know the grace of Jesus. Through his work, we see and know the love of the Father. The Spirit is there in Genesis uh, 1, verse 2. He's God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, ready to bring communion between God's people and God. Later we see... The Spirit rushing upon the judges as they lead God's people. He gives them the strength to do fantastical things. So that God's people may be redeemed. More and more as we go through scriptures, we see uh, the Holy Spirit bringing God's people to him. Matter of fact, David writes in Psalm 143, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. David knows his need of the spirit. And that blessing simply expands under Jesus. 
Indeed, now we, as a people, are a temple. Because the Spirit dwells within us. Paul writes to the Romans, You, uh, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The understanding that is if you are a believer in Christ, you are so because the Spirit dwells within you. He essentially tabernacles, he churches within you that you are a house of worship. Praising Jesus, praising God because of the work of the Spirit. This is fantastic. It is amazing. It is not to be forgotten that uh, the Spirit dwells within us. We can't leave God. There's no place we can go where all of a sudden the Spirit can't get to us. No, the Spirit is always within His people. He is always within the brothers of sisters in Christ, leading us to Him and praising His name. He, He brings us to fellowship with one another and with God our Father and with God the Son. It is through the Spirit that our hope and our salvation is applied to our souls, that, to our souls and our bodies, that we can look forward to the resurrection. That we can look forward to a time in which sadness and hurt and pain are no more. The Holy Spirit shines the light on the gospel that we may know who Jesus is. He is a tremendous blessing. And really, if you want to see the beauty of the Holy Spirit, if you want to know the work of the Holy Spirit, I say meditate on Romans 8 for a while. Whether it is a day, a week, a month, year, it is a beautiful chapter in which we see the Spirit at work in God's people claiming them, making us more than conquerors. Because the Spirit helps us put to death the things that would draw us away from the Lord. And he makes us more and more like our brother Jesus. He reminds us that we are children of God. That we can call God Father and that God is our Father. That we are adopted into this family. That Jesus is our brother. That we are brothers and sisters to one another. The Spirit gives us life. He pulls us away from our sin. He shows us the resurrection. Reminds us, this is the blessing we have. Don't lose the awe of this. We hear the name of Jesus a lot because we grow up in, most of us, or many of us, have grown up in a church. I'm not saying all of us. But for those of you and those of you who are Uh, Long in your faith, that is wonderful and that is good. Do not lose sight of the beauty of the work of the triune God. The Spirit shines a light on the great love of the Lord above. Now I'll confess, I'm about to conclude my sermon. My sermon is not exhaustive. Again, it probably would take me 15 hours to begin to do something that we may consider kind of exhaustive. But we should study our Lord. We should know our God. We should take the time to love the Father and love the Son and love the Holy Spirit. For He loves us. 
We should dwell in the scriptures. We should listen to the sermons. We should worship together. We need to partake in the sacraments. We need to spend time in prayer to know the Lord more and more that we may grow in our faith. And remember, there's, there's this great quote by a Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, who says this, We know ourselves to be children of the Father, redeemed by the Son, and in communion with both through the Holy Spirit. Every blessing, both spiritual and material, comes to us from the triune God. Every blessing. Knowing a God affects everything that we do. It affects how we react with the world, how we view the things that the Lord has put before us, and it brings us into this great love and grace. So let us seek him. Let us put aside worldly things and pursue the one true God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. You are, you are amazing. Lord, even though we do not deserve any of blessing at all, you have poured out your love upon us so that we proclaim that you indeed are love. And we get to rest in the marvelous grace of the Savior, resting in our brother. And we get to see all of this through the Spirit. Lord, we praise your name. Amen.